0: This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The coronavirus pandemic has put huge stress on the education system, from teachers and school administrators to parents and students figuring out remote learning and reopening campuses safely. It's had an even bigger impact on students who are already at a disadvantage, and experts think it could have long-term consequences for a whole generation of students. The statewide reporting project, Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students, examines those barriers to education that have been amplified by the pandemic, including poverty, housing instability, hunger, internet access, and fear of deportation. Jessica Baikman covers education at WLRN in Miami. She's the editor of Class of COVID-19. Jessica, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're also joined by WMFE's Amy Green. She reported on the digital divide in Orange and Osceola counties about the struggle for students of colour and students from low-income families to get access to the resources they need for online learning. And her reporting is part of the Class of COVID-19 project as well. Amy, thank you as well.
2: Very happy to be here.
0: Jessica, starting with you, when did you realise that education was going to be such a huge problem as a result of this pandemic?
1: I think probably about the same time everyone else was realizing it, sometime around mid-March last year, when you know we were starting to realize what the coronavirus pandemic was going to mean for us in the U.S. It was uh, March 13th when schools throughout the state closed, and that was part of the timing for this project. It's coming out right before that one-year anniversary of when schools closed, as well as before the start of the legislative session, which is really the first time the, the state legislature has had an opportunity to try to address uh, some of the issues that we're facing now. Um, but back then in March, you know, one of the first questions that I thought of, and I know that a lot of school district leaders and principals were thinking of was, how are we gonna feed students? You know, Schools are a primary source of nutrition for a lot of children. And so that was kind of one of the first things you saw school districts like jump into action to figure out, okay, how can we feed students? Let's set up, you know, bus loops where people can drive up and get food put into their trunk of their car or even in the Florida Keys. One of the stories we reported on because it's such an interesting, a different kind of area geographically being an island chain that, you know, it's not as accessible transportation-wise for some families to be able to go to a school to pick up food. So they actually started um, delivering meals along the school bus routes. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of food was the first thought. And then the second thought was technology, you know, as schools shifted online quickly, how are we going to deliver laptops and Wi-Fi hotspots to families? Um, and I think those those two uh Food and technology being kind of the first things that came about, um, you know, the first concerns that we thought about with the pandemic, it, it, those problems are still problems now a year later. You know, and I think that's part of why we wanted to do this project, because it really highlights all of the different ways that many families in our state are struggling um, that you might not think has anything to do with education, like Food or uh, transportation or you know limited access to healthcare, and yet all of those things are getting in the way of students succeeding in school.
0: Amy, I want to pick up on the technology aspect because this was the focus of your reporting, and initially you zeroed in on Osceola County. Um, why was Osceola County a, a key? area for you to to talk about this uh, so-called digital divide?
2: I was interested in Osceola County because of the unique situation there with the unemployment rate. Osceola County, at this point in the pandemic, is home to the state's highest unemployment rate. The county has just been battered by mass layoffs at the theme parks there. And And so I focused on Osceola County for that reason. Osceola County and also Orange County are very richly diverse school districts. And what my story examined is a trend that we are seeing emerging in the studies, you know, this early on uh, from the start of the pandemic, which is that uh, families of color and low income families are more likely to be, um, I just lost my train of thought, Families of color and low-income families are more likely to be learning virtually at this point in the pandemic, even as these families face some of the greatest challenges to success online, like access to technology and things like that. And so so this trend that the studies have shown um, that is playing out across the country is one that we are seeing playing out here in central Florida in counties like Osceola and Orange.
0: Now, you spoke to Osceola County School Superintendent Deborah Pace. Um, what did she tell you?
2: Well, she said, very frankly, that this is something that keeps her up at night. These are some of our most vulnerable children, um, you know, children of colour and low-income children. And what worries her and many other experts is that learning disparities that we saw before the pandemic because of systemic racism and systemic inequities, that uh, these disparities are being exacerbated by the pandemic. And the Osceola superintendent and many other experts worry that we are setting up these children for even more challenges going into the future by providing them with not enough education or an education that's not enough, Uh, Mm -hmm. by doing these virtual programs, not enough for these children who face some unique and specific challenges at home and potentially setting up these children for even more challenges into the future. She said that she worries that we could be losing a generation of children to these problems.
0: And I want to talk a little more about the mother and daughter who you interviewed, Amy. But if I could come back to you for a moment, Jessica, just thinking about a couple of these issues here, and you talked about the, the food situation in the Keys. Of course, there's some geographical things that make that a unique school district. But did, did you get the sense from editing this project that there's a real disparity in some of the issues that you're seeing statewide or, or you know are these problems kind of hyper-local or do you just find every single school district dealing with the same problems, but just maybe on a different scale?
1: Yeah, so the answer is kind of yes to both of those. Uh, On one hand, yes, we are seeing disparities, and that's really the focus of the project. The full title is Class of COVID-19, an Education Crisis for Florida's Vulnerable Students. And we really zoom in on the most vulnerable students, the students who, as Amy said, are already experiencing the greatest challenges to success and see how the, the different, uh, you know, difficulties of the pandemic have sort of all come together in this perfect storm to just make things worse for those students. You know, Amy mentioned students of color and low-income students. One thing to remember is that the reason why many of those families are more vulnerable right now is because um, Black and Latino communities have been hit way harder by the pandemic. And so if you're in a situation where You've lost a loved one to COVID nineteen, or you have uh, maybe a grandmother who lives in your household. Then you know, from a parent's perspective, making that decision about sending your kid back to school is a lot different than if you're someone who is able to work from home, who doesn't have someone who's high risk in your household, who maybe just because of privilege, whether that's racial privilege or socioeconomic privilege, has not really seen how destructive. The pandemic has been, you know, then your calculation about sending your kids back to school is going to be different. So yes, we're seeing disparities. But I also think that whereas Amy's story on the digital divide was focusing on Osceola County and Orange County, we can see that story playing out anywhere in Florida.
0: The notion to of a lost generation. I mean, that's that's pretty profound, right? Um, did that sort of come through in the uh, across the board when you talk to experts? Like, uh, just the, the the sheer fact of taking it, you know—having to rethink the way you do things for a year, or, or maybe students just falling behind for a year. Does that really have a generational impact? Do you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. One year of school, especially if you're in foundational grades where you're just learning to read or you're just learning the basics of math, that the whole rest of your education is going to be based on, you know, that knowledge, Um, not to mention just the fact that the quality of education, not the teacher's fault, but the quality of education has suffered because students are learning from home. But then that's a student in the best of situations, you know, if you're also dealing with Maybe you're splitting time between one family member's house and another family member's house or staying with a friend because there's unstable um, housing or your mom or dad lost their job or whatever. You, you add in those additional stressors and then learning online becomes impossible. And it's interesting because we had reporters from all over the state working on this project and you know we all knew what our stories were about, but for the most part, that reporting process was individual. And yet when I'm listening to... The interviews as they're coming in or, or we're doing these edits on stories, I'm hearing the same thing from people looking at this issue from all different kinds. And there were, I think, at least three or four people who said almost exactly we're going to lose a generation of students to this.
0: If you're just joining me, my guests are Jessica Bateman, who is the education reporter for WLRN in Miami and WMFE's Amy Green. We're talking about Class of COVID 19, the statewide reporting project about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on education in Florida. Uh, Amy, just picking up on something that Jessica was saying there, I want to come back to you and talk about the family you spoke to. Talk to me about that family, Bathsheba and her daughter, Gabrielle. And what stood out to you about the conversation you had with this mother and daughter?
2: Bathsheba and Gabrielle, you know, we're not naming their last names to protect their privacy. Gabrielle goes to an Orlando middle school and she has been doing virtual school throughout the pandemic and Gabrielle is a student who faces some challenges at home. Her mother's been out of work since last March. Uh, She and an older sibling have been splitting their time between their mother's place and their grandmother's, doing school at home. Her mother is facing the threat of eviction. And so when you think through these challenges, when you think through this kind of home life for Gabrielle and think through the challenges that we all have experienced through this pandemic, and then on top of that, virtual school with very inherent obvious challenges like glitchy technology and isolation and access to personal time with teachers and it would be hard for anyone to concentrate on school like that
0: now how did she tell you about how virtual school is going for her
2: Virtual school was very challenging. You know, she talked to me about how confusing it was. And any parent that is in Orange County, it's called LaunchEd. Any any Orange County parent that's doing LaunchEd with a child will identify with this situation. The confusion in navigating between multiple meeting platforms, Microsoft Teams and a similar Zoom-style meeting program called Big Blue Button are the two programs that the teachers in Orange County are using. Gabrielle finds that confusing and frustrating. She finds it hard even asking a question. She talked about how when she tries to ask a question, she has to unmute herself. Sometimes the teacher is on a different screen and isn't able to hear Gabrielle or respond. And and Gabrielle, very frankly, said a lot of days she just ends up on TikTok.
0: Mm -hmm. So you also talked to Gabrielle and Bathsheba about the idea of going back to school in person. What was the kind of rationale for the decision they made there?
2: Right. So at the time we conducted the interview, her mother and grandmother and teacher all had reached a point where they agreed that Gabrielle's grades and attendance had suffered to the point where it was time for Gabrielle to go back to -to face-to-face school on campus at her school. And Gabrielle was very nervous about that. She was very nervous about how far she's fallen behind, but they felt like for Gabrielle, it was what she needed to get her back on track. Mm
0: -hmm. Jessica, I wonder, kind of thinking about the the practical implications for K through twelve funding and and uh, you know other education funding are schools just going to need a whole bunch more money next year and the year after just to keep up with the technology and the infrastructure demands that um, the pandemic has put upon them.
1: Yes, and I think not just because of the technology and infrastructure demands. So Gabrielle is one of tens of thousands of students who have throughout the state of Florida made that decision to go back to school starting this semester, that happened partly because the state mandate that allowed schools to um, continue doing part virtual, part online, all these policies, it included this requirement that school districts reach out to families at the beginning of this year, so halfway through the school year, and let them know your student who's learning from home is not making adequate academic progress and needs to come back to school. So a lot of students have returned because of that. But if you think that through, that means more teachers have to return in order to make sure there are teachers in the classroom for every student in the classroom, you know, enough teachers to cover those students. And also that makes social distancing a problem. Part of the reason why schools have not been as much of a a concern as far as spreading the coronavirus as we initially feared they would be is because many schools are only seeing a third of students return or even half students return and so right there that gives you that social distancing you need to keep space between students in the classroom but the more students return and you know the more families who are making the choice to send their kids back because they're struggling so much from home that increases the amount of pressure on schools for that social distancing. You're hearing teachers being more and more concerned about that. And also arguing that they should be getting um, you know, priority for getting the vaccine, which has not happened in the state of Florida. So I know there was a lot of money in the federal CARES Act that went to schools that helped at the beginning. And I, I think that schools are very much um, awaiting and uh, desperate for more federal funding. As far as state funding, one big question going into next school year, so your listeners might be aware of the fact that a lot of school districts have lost enrollment um, during this. In fact, uh, nearly 90,000 students throughout the state of Florida are what people have just been calling missing right now. Um, Many of them uh, may have moved or switched to a private school or switched to homeschool and maybe didn't properly let their school districts know. But... And, and many are also kind of waiting out pre-K, waiting out kindergarten, staying at home an extra year. But, but there's still evidence that many of those students have just fallen off the grid. We just don't know where they are. They, they've completely stopped going to school.
0: And that affects funding, right?
1: Exactly. Funding is based on enrollment. This current school year, the Department of Education sort of made a deal with school districts that said, we want you to open schools uh, to give families the option of face-to-face classes. If you do, we'll continue to fund you based on pre-pandemic enrollment levels, right? But all indications so far suggest that that is not going to be the case for next school year, which means those nearly 90,000 students, all of the money that would go with those students is going to disappear from school budgets at a time when they need a lot more money to deal with, you know, hiring additional staff to make, um, you know, social distancing work and smaller class sizes and all of that. So I think the, the financial crisis for schools is still to come, unfortunately.
0: Well, Jessica Bakeman covers education at WLRN in, in Miami. She's the editor of Class of COVID-19, a statewide reporting project about the impact of the pandemic on education in Florida. Jessica, thanks so much for your reporting on this project and, and your time.
1: Thank you, and, and thank you for letting us have Amy uh, to work on this as well.
0: And WMFE's Amy Green reported on the digital divide in Orange and Osceola County for the project. Amy, thank you as well.
2: Very nice talking with you and very nice being included in the project.
0: And you can find access with some of the reporting from Class of COVID-19 on our website, wmfe.org. The full project is available at www.classofcovid.org. Up next, how are college students with disabilities faring during the pandemic? We'll chat with Adam Meyer, UCF's Director of Inclusive Education Services. Stay with us. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The University of Central Florida has a vast campus and a student population of about 70,000. And it's a destination for students with disabilities. Adam Meyer is the director of UCF's Inclusive Education Services. His office helps make sure course content is accessible for students with physical disabilities, such as those who are deaf or blind, and that accommodations are being made for students with other disabilities too. Meyer says his office works with about 3,000 students. I talked with Meyer about how 2020 changed the workers' office does and what long-term changes may come about as a result of the pandemic. Well, Adam Meyer, Director of Inclusive Education Services at UCF, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. I wonder if you could just talk us through the kinds of accommodations that you have for students with disabilities at UCF generally, leaving aside the pandemic.
3: Sure.
4: So in general, our office works with around 3,000 students each academic year. Most of the students we work with are students with invisible disabilities, as opposed to students with physical disabilities, but we do have students who are deaf, blind, or who also use wheelchairs. Most common accommodation would be extended time for exams. We also work with students to ensure captioning on videos in the classroom. We work to make sure that content in the classes are accessible, such as um, textbooks or handouts or articles or uh, other materials that students who are blind may be in taking a class and they need to make sure that the, that material is accessible. Um, we also work with students who have quite a few chronic health conditions. And so more and more students are having to miss class from time to time due to their chronic health situation. So we work with them to figure out how the professor can best support mm-hmm. them in the classroom mm-hmm. in light of, of their health.
0: hmm you know the, the pandemic has been a challenge for everyone. But off of the top of your head, what what would be the biggest change you've had to make um, since March last year?
4: From an access standpoint, the, definitely the biggest thing is that with more of the classes obviously moving into an online format with videos and online lectures, our deaf and hard of hearing population has been probably the most impacted because of the the way the content is now delivered. So. We've seen a a massive growth in the the number of videos, the minutes of videos that we have to caption to make sure that those are equally accessible for our deaf and hard of hearing population.
0: And do you contract that out or do you have like a a team of folks who help you out with that at the university?
4: It's a little bit of both. So we do have a team and right now there are probably about five or six people across a couple of different units on campus who are working on this. And then we do work with vendors at the national level who also we have to it's a whole process where we upload the videos they provide captioning They provide a file and then we get the videos back from them but they've actually been very overwhelmed too because we're not the only school who's seen this increase so it's been a lot to manage for uh the, this
0: world right now mm-hmm. what kind of feedback are you getting from the students like um are you are you kind of getting ideas from them or is it more just like help us out we, we're struggling with this
4: yeah so our, our main focus and we talk about accommodations like you asked in the initial question but really we see our main focus in the work that we do is to ensure equal access and inclusive experience for disabled students and so it can be through accommodations it can be through other supports and resources or adjustments to how they experience the the academic environment so but we have a process where students will reach out to us and they will if they say a course is inaccessible, such as I, my professor is showing all these videos and the videos don't have natural captions that are part of the videos, then they will ask us to work with them and their professors to make sure that we make those videos accessible.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Adam Meyer. He is the Director of Inclusive Education Services at the University of Central Florida. We're talking about the impact of the pandemic on uh, the kinds of accommodations that are being made for students with disabilities so I wonder, too, about the technology aspect of things, because if you talk about the K through 12 um, learning situation over the last, uh, you know, 11 months or so, mm-hmm. one of the biggest challenges has been making sure that students have access to the technology they need if they're still in that remote learning situation to, to be able to participate in classes, like whether it's Wi-Fi or, uh, you know, computers or devices that they can join the class with. Um, is there a... a technology aspect to the challenge that you all faced in the last 11 months or so too like have you have you found that you're you're needing a certain kind of technology that you don't have or have you had to kind of scramble and develop something in the meantime
4: for the most part the technology that we had in place prior to the pandemic and what we were able to loan out to students meets the needs of the online virtual world that we're Managing right now. So we haven't made too many adjustments there. Our our big change is that sometimes the technology is something the students have to get on their own or they're responsible for obtaining, but there are other pieces of technology or equipment that we will provide to the students. Our process before had been that students needed to come to our office to pick up the technology. But we have had to develop a, an entire mail system because we didn't want students to feel burdened up to come to campus if they weren't going to be here for any other reason. So that took a little bit of time to work out, but we feel we have a pretty good process in place with that. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the other things too that students at at all levels are, are struggling with, and of course it does not it extends beyond the academic world too. But you know the the stress of um, going through classes alone, and if you're remote learning, you know not having that that. Um, contact with other students um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that challenge has been like for the students that you deal with
4: I to my perspective on that is that for the first and foremost the students we work with are students first and they're disabled students or students with disabilities second so I absolutely agree with you that there have been a lot of challenges and additional stress and many fronts for all students and really faculty I and mean, all of us right in going through this pandemic experience so I don't know if there's been a lot more that we could say at least from our perspective in our lens that's been different for disabled students compared to the non-disabled population but some level, it's also case by case and on the flip side I can also say that the virtual environment because so many of our students we work with have chronic health conditions in the past where the expectation was that they had to physically be on campus and go to class but their body may not have been such that they could function on a given day to go to class. There's actually been greater access with the pandemic because now there are days they may not be feeling well, but they can comfortably sit in bed, sit on the couch at home and participate in class without having to physically go there. So yes, there's been stresses and there's also been ways that the access is even better right now.
0: Do you think some of that change in access is going to persist beyond the pandemic, like once we're through the other side of this thing?
4: We were hopeful and we still hope for that, but we also know that in our work with faculty Mm -hmm. that there have been a lot of additional stresses placed on them and faculty who maybe tried to allow some students to participate virtually and also allow students to participate uh, physically on campus. That's not as easy to balance that as thought. So it'll be very interesting to see how higher education moves out of the pandemic, what things stick what seems to work and what uh, we maybe go back to the old way of doing things but I'm, I'm sure there'll be some sort of balance or blending of the positives from both worlds
0: mm-hmm. are you are you finding that you have fewer students to to help out um this year than you would have last year and I guess this goes to the the idea of whether people are just opting to put a pause on studying for a while until the pandemic um subsides like are you finding that the the number of students with disabilities has gone down a little bit over the last uh, little while?
4: Since, we, since the pandemic started, our numbers have been, I'd say, continuing at the same trajectory, the same increase that we really would have anticipated in other semesters. Um, to us, it's, it's really more about equal access, and, and what we find is that we're still offering education now. The, the nature of what is accessible or not accessible is shifting a little bit. So students are still coming to us that just some of the questions, some of the issues may be a little bit different or how we facilitate those accommodations or facilitate that access with the professor may be a little bit different, but in the end, we're still trying to accomplish the same thing and students still need the access to the education. So yeah, in in short, to answer your question, I'd say we haven't seen significant adjustments
0: in in our numbers. Mm -hmm. Has it made people think um, more about the kinds of accommodations that they have to make for, um, for students who 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 have different abilities than they would normally i'm just wondering if it, from a, the point of view of of having people you know, think really think carefully about access to education for everyone, um, do you think this changes the, the, the approach that people are going to take um, to to making classes accessible for everyone from here on out if that question makes sense?
4: Yes, it does. There's a concept in higher education that is slowly gaining more and more traction, what's known as universal design for learning. And the idea is that if a class is designed from the way it's taught to the way students are assessed from the outset, and if it's accessible through multiple modes of engagement, multiple modes of assessment, et cetera, that ideally it's more accessible for all students with or without disabilities. And those with disabilities who are in classes that are Built with a universal design component, the, the ultimate goal is that there's fewer need or no need for accommodations. Accommodations is always sort of seen as a last resort or as a reactive step to addressing a component of the class that wasn't designed from an equal access standpoint initially. And so mm-hmm. I, I think what I kind of heard within your question is, yeah, I think there are professors are having to think differently about how they teach because of where we're at and and how that those teachings or that 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 delivery impacts students in different ways and I do hope that there will be ways to see that we can make classes more accessible through different approaches as we continue to move forward from this.
0: That sounds like a real paradigm shift though I mean because you you really have to start from scratch and, and say if you are going into the teaching profession at any level you have to just kind of take a different approach to how you design your classes.
4: I completely agree with you on that. I I don't think classes are really not that much different from the way the rest of our society is, is designed and what disabled people will tell you is that they don't feel that they have a disability because of their own individual personal impairment, condition, diagnosis, whatever you want to say, but they identify as really being disabled by the environment, by Uh, we have steps everywhere. So somebody who uses a wheelchair, they have to really think about how they get from point A to point B or into a building. Uh, We tend to, unfortunately in our culture, we design things for the majority and the majority is not disabled individuals. So they can feel left out. So yes, you're right. It it does become a paradigm shift to think about how do we try to include all people in in our design of classes, spaces, whatever it may be.
0: And you mentioned the kind of the built, the physical environment. Is that where this idea originated kind of thinking about, um education or, or class you know designing a course kind of adopting some of those ideas across from the, the the world of um physical design
4: exactly yeah one of the classic universal design concepts is a curb cut right where that was initially designed to help individuals with wheelchairs but if you bike ride stroller rollerblade push a stroller whatever uh you you find advantages in going up and from a sidewalk down a street or whatever with a curb cut so yeah so that that's the same kind of thinking there Mm-hmm. Just
0: uh, to, to wrap things up here, Adam, um, what's the last 11 months been like for you? Is Has it, is it kind of made you um, rethink some of your approach to, to education and, and the work that you do in a typical course of events?
4: Absolutely. It has taught us to rethink some of our processes, how we continue to engage with students, engage with faculty, I think in our field, as I'm sure in many fields, we've encountered different situations that we hadn't encountered before. So on some level, that's kind of invigorating. We have to think through new ways of how we define access, how we deliver access to our students. And so we do hope it's pushing us forward to ultimately create a better overall accessible experience for students at UCF.
0: Well, Adam Meyer is the Director of Inclusive Education Services at the University of Central Florida. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Still to come, how an Orlando elementary school navigated reopening in the pandemic. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Before March last year, Catalina Elementary School in Orlando was on track to getting a B grade. The pandemic torpedoed those ambitions, but Principal Seth Dorb says since the campus reopened in August, the students attending in person have started to get back on track, and the school has managed to keep students and staff safe. Dorb's approach to reopening and how it fits into the giant national experiment of living with the pandemic was featured in a recent article in Wired. Joining me is Seth Dorb. He is the principal of Catalina Elementary School. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Also joined by Rose Simon. She's a parent of three kids at Catalina from uh, pre-K through to fifth grade. Rose, thanks for making the time.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: And Sandra Upson is a senior editor at WIRED. She wrote about Catalina Elementary School and how uh, it is approaching the pandemic. Sandra, thank you so much as well.
3: Glad to be here, thank you.
0: Seth, I wanna start with you. Um, Why don't you just give us a quick description of Catalina Elementary School? Sure,
3: Um, Catalina Elementary is a pre-K through five elementary school in Orange County, so in Orlando, Florida. Um, We have about 650 students. Um, 100% of our students qualify for free and reduced lunch. Um, and about 74% of our students are black. Um, And I say black because our students, we have a large population from Haiti who are not considered African-American, and we have about 13-14% that are Hispanic.
0: Now, back in August, there was a a ton of uncertainty, right? About reopening of schools initially we thought this might be a couple of weeks at the most Um, it was going to be an extended spring break nobody really knew schools would become like super spreaders or how the virus affected the children you know if and when schools got reopened again so when it came to reopening like how did you do that
3: well um, with lots of um, confidence lots of structure lots of conversations um, with the district office also with our team here, lots of belief in our our staff and our uh, teachers and our students and our community. Also um, lots of confidence that we were going to make sure that we were not a school that was going to have a super spreader, as you stated, that we would make sure that we're following all CDC guidelines, all district policies, and to make sure that all of our students and our staff uh, remained safe at all times. Um, Wearing masks at all times, hand washing, um, sanitizer, socially distance, And just following all those protocols from day one, from the beginning. Also, um, really working with with our teachers and our staff and continuing to build those relationships and the assurance that that we're all going to be okay and and providing them the voice that they needed to know that we're going to get through this together and everyone is going to be okay and we're going to move forward and, and, and educate
0: children. Rose, I want to turn to you for a moment. What went into the decision for you whether or not to send your kids back to school in person?
5: Well, like I said, I have three kids here and a little one, that's two. Being at home with them was already a struggle, as is. My son, who's in first grade right now, he struggled really bad with doing um, launch ed. He's more on the shy side, so he doesn't like people staring at him. And that's what he felt like as um, being on the screen. He felt like the whole class was watching him. So he, it was always a struggle. Every day, trying to get him into class, I literally had to sit with him. So he didn't do too well that last semester, that last um, quarter of the school year. So when it was time to go back to school, like any parent, I was very nervous. But I knew I had to do what was best for him education-wise. And I trust Catalina because I know all the procedures Mr. Dobb has in place for the students. So it was it was a hard decision, but I... I, right now, I'm um, still, I, I haven't regretted my decision, let's put it like I
6: was just going to add, Rose, when you told me about your son, it was such a striking story to me because he seemed like someone who really loved school and was just seeing that love just disappear yes. when you was back at home. Like such a young age, to have to yeah. learn to do school online is a crazy ask of anyone. And then when he went back, he just blossomed and yes. became like a different person and to that that really stood out to me
5: yeah even right now in class he sits his teacher has to put him in front of a class he's one of those students who you know how teachers tell um students to track the speaker he does if, if he's speaking he don't want everyone tracking him He don't want all the eyes on him he, he'll answer the questions now but the minute all the eyes are on him he gets very timid and shy so i i I understand him because I am an introvert myself and I don't like all the the attention. So I kind of sympathize with him.
0: Sandra, what was it about Catalina that that caught your eye as a reporter and made you think this is a story that that needs to be heard and, and on a national to a national audience as well?
6: Well, we knew we wanted to cover the story of what it's like to reopen in person, especially, you know, starting in August when we first started talking about this. Um, at a time when there was so much uncertainty, what do you do if you have to reopen? And so we wanted to focus on a school in a place where reopening was basically guaranteed. You had no choice in the matter. And we wanted a school that had a population that benefited even more than other places from being in the building and having all the resources. Um, And so I was looking for places with strong leadership, too. And Catalina kind of checked all those boxes for me. It seemed like Seth was you know the right person to kind of put in charge. I wanted to see like a good faith effort at reopening and um, that's what I found in Catalina.
0: How do you think the story of Catalina fits into the biggest picture of schools reopening nationwide? And I guess it, it might be a little bit hard to answer that because every state, every county has a slightly different approach to it, right?
6: Right. And I struggled with that after a few months of thinking and following and talking to people like Catalina. I was like, what did I actually learn from this? Because it's just one school in a very particular set of circumstances. And you look at it and you think, was it just luck that they got you know, such a minimal impact from COVID-19. And I ultimately found that, you know, while you can't derive any sort of prescription from what Catalina experienced, it matched very much what other schools around the country were seeing in terms of, it was actually pretty safe to bring elementary school kids back. And a big part of that in my take on the literature and what other schools were reporting was that they adhered to the guidelines. They're still at an age when they listen to authority, and so they wore their masks and they stuck to it, and they did the social distancing. And I think at the outset, it wasn't obvious that that was going to happen. They thought, oh, little kids, they can't learn these new crazy rules. Um, But it turns out that they really did, you know, like my kid is three years old and in preschool and she wears her mask so if a three year old can learn it, it's actually kind of surprising that the kids in like high school can't follow along to the same degree. But it seemed to me that those basic, most fundamental guidelines of masks and distance made a bigger difference in keeping the virus at bay than we realized at the outset.
0: If you're just joining me, my guest is Seth Dorb. He's the principal of Catalina Elementary School in Orlando, we're also joined by Rose Simon, uh, who has three kids at Catalina Elementary, and Sandra Upson, who's a senior editor at Wired and wrote about the school. So, Principal Dorb, I just want to come back to you for a moment. You know, from reading the Wired article, it really seemed like students were struggling academically, you know, right before they returned. So when you look at their academic progress now, a couple of months in, to compared to when things reopened, how is it looking?
3: Um, there's still some struggles. I'm definitely going to be honest about that. However, the growth has been tremendous. Our students were struggling in uh, foundational skills because they did lose a a big chunk of of last year. Although we did offer um, a schooling at the end of the quarter of the last nine weeks last year, but it was not traditional schooling for our students. So what we did from day one, we went back within each grade level and we started reteaching standards from the previous grade level that we have not done previously. So in the past, we've only retaught standards within that current grade level. And one day I was talking to my leadership team and I said, and we came up with the idea of let's start earlier in the year and do some reteaching of standards of the previous grade level. And I'll be honest, I'm going to start that from now on, no matter pandemic or not. And it kind of helps reinforce what our students might have lost over the summer slide that we usually do have. But I, our academics are a lot stronger now than they were. Our students yearn from structure. They yearn from consistency. And our students love school. They, they love having that structure. So we're definitely seeing an increase. Is it where we want it to be right at this moment? It's not. But our team is working really, really hard to ensure that our students are receiving, whether it's that foundational level skill that they're missing, or even providing for our, our, our high students more of the um, enrichment activity that they need to be successful as well
0: hmm Rose, thinking about the mask element too, was that, like, did you feel like you had to kind of have a conversation with the kids? Like, you know, here's how you have to stay safe when you're at school. And, and I wonder what that conversation went like before you sent them back.
5: Well, um, lucky for us, we did have a long period of time to get ready before going back to school. So once the mask-mandated um, thing came into effect, I did that wherever we went. My kids were always with masks. So having to go back to school and having to wear masks was not an issue for them at all. Now These days, they remind me to grab their mask for him, for them because I, sometimes I forget. Um, but it's it's becoming a part of their culture. Now it's like a shift. Now if, if they're not wearing their mask, if I'm not wearing my mask, they call me out on it. So it's, it's like a big shift that I did not expect because I was nervous about that because when kids get around their friends, they tend to change. So I was afraid that when they got to school that they they would not want to wear their mask. But no, that, that hasn't been an issue at all for us.
0: Sandra, just sort of thinking about the way you approach the story. I mean, it does seem like teachers, principals, administrators are kind of in this position of, of running this massive experiment of how to live with a pandemic in, in Florida, especially because there wasn't a choice as to whether to reopen schools. They had to offer that option. Is it kind of interesting from a writer's point of view to sort of look at how schools are coping like Catalina and other schools are kind of coping with this experiment, uh, you know, through no choice of their own?
6: Yeah, very much so. And um, in my reporting, I also wanted to look a little bit internationally to see if there are any things we could learn from other countries. And this experiment sort of is not just contained to our borders. And, you know, one of the things that I found pretty interesting um, that I didn't end up writing about was that there are some things that are not captured so easily in data or in simple rules like masks or social distancing. And one thing that emerged was that a lot of communication and strong leadership also actually plays a role. It, like there was a demonstrable uh, benefit from having the over-communication that can come from groups and governments and you know, school leadership teams talking and really just getting on the same page about what we're doing and embracing the fact that this is a really challenging time. This is so hard. We're asking a lot of so many people and making sure that everyone kind of agreed that this is what we're gonna do together and understands the rules and buys into them also contributed to more successful reopenings and places where you saw strife um, were ones where the, you know, what whoever was setting the rules didn't do a great job of bringing everyone on board. So, you know, Seth is someone who is a, a, an over communicator. Everyone I talked to said that he loves to, you know, sort of lay out the plan and tell everybody. And he, you know, the parents are like, oh my gosh, he's constantly leaving us voicemails telling us what's up at the school. You know, in a normal time, he'll show up at a family's doorstep to be like, hey, where's your kid? Um, and so he's just like really in the community and talking a lot. And I can't measure that. I can't say, you know, that definitely had an effect on success at the school. But to me, it seemed like one of the components that when you have it is so in your favor to getting through this like horrible experiment that we've all been a part of.
0: Sandra, I wanted to ask too about a quote in your article. Um, and and this, I think, may have changed a little bit just because things have changed in the last few months. But you wrote that um, Catalina's reopening may have worked so well because there were so many initially so many virtual learners and you said, quote, it's roughly 400 virtual learners who might end up having unwittingly sacrificed their own education for the betterment of their in-person peers, end quote. And that kind of, I think, matches up to a little bit of what I've heard from, from others saying, you know, part of the reason why we may not have seen so many cases in schools is because initially, at least, you know, we're, we're about sort of 50% capacity for schools. And so people are able to spread out more. Kind of reflecting on that now, how, how, do, you, how do you feel about that aspect of the story?
6: Uh, it still rings true to me. We'll get more data, you know, in months um, as we see what happens when schools are more crowded. And not to say that Catalina is going to have more cases in the future. We don't know. But I think that it, it we know quite well that social distancing is an important part of this airborne uh, disease. And when you have more people more densely packed, especially when local transmission rates are high, that leads to a more vulnerable situation that increases the risk of the virus spreading. So it is a trade-off, and it's an unfortunate trade-off, and I think that's going to continue to be the case. You can see it in the new CDC guidelines, which say very clearly that Schools are supposed to have six feet of distancing, which is frankly unreasonable for a lot of school buildings who, without extra capacity and extra classrooms. So um, there is a lot of tension around that. We want as many kids to be in classrooms as possible. But the distance to me seems very important. And maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe lots of us will be proven wrong. We don't know. But that's just the best
5: guess based on the data that I've seen.
0: Rose, Simon, how are you feeling now about school compared to, say, six months ago?
5: Um, my mind is more at ease these days. Um, I am one of those parents. I'm, I consider myself a helicopter parent. So I'm, I'm always checking in on my on my children. Um, and I'm always on OCPS's website checking to see what the updates are on um, the COVID cases. And like Mr. Dobbs said, Knock on wood, um, but they've been very fortunate to not have a high number of cases. But that's because of all the procedures they have in place. So because of that, it, it does help keep my mind at ease as a parent. Because sending your kid out to the world is like you're sacrificing your kids. But with a school like Catalina, it, it helped make the decision more. Um, it helped make the decision more doable. I guess.
0: Sandra, are you going to be following Catalina uh, over the next few months to kind of see how things play out? And, and I wonder, too, what else you might be doing in terms of reporting on, on schools reopening as the year unfolds.
6: I'll keep an eye on it. I hope that Seth and I can keep in touch and see, you know, what the next few months bring. But uh, I think for now, I, I don't have immediate plans to do another uh, story on schools, but I'll, I'll just keep an eye on it and see where the data takes us and what
0: the next chapter is going to be in this crazy experiment. Seth Dorb, if you were to give some advice to other schools, maybe in other states that are contemplating reopening, what would you tell them?
3: I would say a couple things. First of all, do what's always right for children. Do what's in your heart and plan, communicate. Make sure you have a team that's going to follow guidelines. But also you still have to love the children. I, I I will tell you this, and it came to me, I'll never forget back in August, I had a student in the front office, one of my, one of the students that I, that I, I love all my students, don't get me wrong, but this one particular one I, I'm very close with, and she came up, I believe it was August, she had, uh, her, her and her mom were in the front office, and she came up to me, and she was so excited to see me, and vice versa, that she ran up to me to give me a hug, and I froze, because I was like, I don't know what to do in my head, I'm like, I'm not supposed to hug her back, because that's not CDC guideline appropriate. And I literally froze and she hugged me and I, and I kind of hugged her back with open arms and, you know, and I went to my office and and I sprayed myself down with Lysol because I didn't know what else to do. And it's not because I felt she had COVID. It's just, I was like, that was my first encounter. And then I realized it's all about the kids and our children need love. They need someone that cares about them. And not not that they haven't had it, but they haven't had that structure from a school building in so long that um, you just got to do what's in your heart at all times. And, you know, it's going to be hard, but you got to rip that Band-Aid off. And and once you get wheels in motion and procedures in place and see students learning again, it really is magical. It, it was hard. August was hard. A lot of anxiety with, with, with staff and with, with students and with parents. And just continue to build those relationships and always just do what's what's right for children. You know, seeing a student learn, there's there's nothing better than that.
0: Well, I want to thank my guests, Seth Dorb, is the principal of Catalina Elementary School. Seth, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you. We're
0: also joined by Rose Simon. She has three kids at Catalina Elementary. Rose, thank you as well. Thank you. And Sandra Upson is a senior editor at Wired. Her article about Catalina Elementary is called COVID Schools and the High Stakes Experiment No One Wanted. Sandra, thank you so much as well. Thank you so much. And there's a link to Sandra Upson's reporting on Catalina Elementary on our website, wmfe.org intersection. And you can also find out more about the Class of COVID-19 project, about the impact of the pandemic on education in Florida, over at classofcovid.org. Listen to the one-hour radio special on WMFE. That's 12 noon on Saturday, February 20th. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Clarissa Moon. Special thanks also to Jessica Bakeman, Odalis Garcia, and the team at WLRN. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can listen back to archived shows on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.